Okay, we are finished with the visions. It's actually almost a disappointment for me, but I, and I know for some of you, because some of you are visionaries, and so you like to be there for a little while. We're now going to go through the exposition of Zechariah. Uh, one commentator called Zechariah 6, 9 through 15, the appendix to the eight visions. In other words, it's going to inform us about the eight visions. I call it blessed, encouraging truth for the heart. Some folks struggle with the idea of how do you take this message, these messages to the Old Testament folks and apply them to your own life. Folks, if you don't see a bigger God, if you don't see a more worthy God by looking at these kinds of things, that's what we need to be doing. We need to be in awe of what he's done for us, how he's planned it completely and thoroughly. While the rebuilding of the temple is oh so important, the ultimate hope for the people of God is to be with the one who is the priest king, the Messiah. That's the ultimate hope. We may have left the visions, but now we're going to experience the symbolic crowning of Joshua. Zechariah is commanded to crown Joshua, the high priest. This symbolic crowning is looking into the future. It's really looking at another crowning, a more significant crowning, a more impactful crowning. Zechariah is lifting the eyes of the people from the material building of the temple and the wall and all of those kinds of things to the spiritual building of their hearts. They are to be encouraged because the Messiah is coming. Here we have Zechariah receiving a word from the Lord. Friends, this is not like today where some folks would say, like Benny Hinn before, that he received a word from the Lord and you need to give me more money. Or received a word from the Lord that can never be affirmed by anyone else. This is not like that. No, no. Zechariah hears from God. So we had better listen to God. So let's read it. Zechariah chapter 6. That's where we've been if you're just visiting us. Zechariah 6, we're going to start in verse 9. We're going to go all the way to verse 15. And so let me read that for us. The word of the Lord also came to me. Take an offering from the exiles from Heldai and Tobijah and Jediah and go the same day and enter the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah, where where they have arrived from Babylon. Take silver and gold make an ornate crown, and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Then say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, a man whose name is Branch, for he will branch out from where he is, and he will build the temple of the Lord. Yes, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord, and he will bear the honor and sit on and rule on the throne on his throne. Thus, he will be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace will be between the two offices. Now the crown will become a reminder in the temple of the Lord of Helam, Tobijah, Jediah, and Hen, the son of Zephaniah. 
those who are far off will come and build the temple of the Lord. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me and it will take place if you completely obey the Lord your God. Just reading that, you go, what? What's being said there? What, what, what is Zechariah looking at? This is also confusing even to even Zechariah, but I'm going to try to pull it apart for us as best I can. What we do is expositional preaching. We want to expose it to you as best we can. So we're going to start in verse 9. I want to give you the introduction, so to speak, to what's happening here. In verse 9, you, you notice there's an intimacy here. There's an intimacy that Joshua has with Yahweh, with God. And it says there, the word of Yahweh also came to me. That's very personal. It's not that it came to us or came to them. It came to me. This is unlike a visionary experience. This is a divine message from God directly. Zechariah is now commanded to act. It says in verse 10, take an offering. Make an offering from the exiles, from Heldai and from Tobijah and from Jediah, and go the same day and enter the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah, where they have arrived from Babylon. Zechariah learns he is to take this offering. They're bringing something to him. There's a purpose behind this. It has been sent to him, where from? Babylon. Take this. These men are not the original exiles, the ones who came the first time, but they came later on, and they were sent to Jerusalem for a purpose. And the purpose we're going to see here in a few minutes. The text of Scripture informs us they recently returned, and I'll bring these men up later because they're mentioned later on. I'm not going to get into them right now. During the time of Israel's exile in Babylon, there were three recorded times when the community of Jews were sent back, and they were sent back with a purpose to go to Jerusalem, and they were sent back with money, gifts of all kinds. And I want to bring them to our attention so that we understand this was natural, this is normal. How come the king of Babylon would be doing that? How would he send back people he conquered and he's sending gifts back to them, or even allowing, if they're from the Jews, allowing them to send gifts back to Jerusalem. It's a God thing, folks. God does that. God does that. Let's look at Ezra. Turn with me back to Ezra, Nehemiah. We'll go back to Ezra, and we'll start in verse, I mean, in chapter 1. Ezra chapter 1, and it is too hot to keep this thing on. <laughs> Ezra chapter 1, starting in verse 5. And listen to this with the idea that these men were sent from Babylon back to Jerusalem. And it says, Then the heads of the father's household of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites arose, even everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up and rebuild the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. All those about which encouraged them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and cattle, and with valuables, aside from all the, that was given as a freewill offering. Also King Cyrus 
brought out the articles of the house of the Lord. These are the things that they pilfered from the temple when they attacked it, when they tore it apart. They brought them to Babylon. And he's taking them back. I mean, it's just mind-boggling. You go and conquer a nation. You don't send back the things to the nation. But that's what he did. He brought out the articles of the houses, verse 7, of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and put in the house of his gods. And Cyrus, king of Persia, had them brought out by the hand of Mithridath, the treasurer, and he counted them out to Sheshbazzar. By the way, Sheshbazzar only shows up in Ezra, the prince of Judah. Now, then it goes, it goes into the numbers and all of that kind of thing. But look down at verse 11. All the articles of gold and silver numbered 5,400. Sheshbazzar brought them up with the exiles who went up from Babylon to Jerusalem. This could be when that group went. I don't know. It doesn't tell us exactly when they went. But there are other times when groups went. Let's look at another one, chapter 2, verse 68. And it says there, some of the heads of the father's households, when they arrived at the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem, offered willingly for the house of, of God to restore it to its foundation. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury for the work of the work 61,000 gold drachmas and 5,000 silver minas and 100 priestly garments. I'm sitting there going, you know, I'm not an accountant. I got to figure out how much this is. What is going on here? Do you know what it was? It was 1,100 pounds of gold. Think about it. 1,100 pounds of gold they brought up. In the Mayas, it was three tons of silver. That was Baku bucks, folks. That was an incredible amount of money that they're sending back to Israel, back to Jerusalem. That's because God's worked on the heart of the king. You know that proverb where it says the, the heart of the king is like water in a man's hand. And that's what's happening here. God is directing him. Last week, I mentioned things like... A, Don't get worried about all of the problems that you have. God has that under control. That's what's happening. Go to Ezra chapter 7. We're not going to look at all of them, but Ezra chapter 7, verse 11. It says this. Now, this is the the copy of the decree that King Artaxerxes gave to the Ezra the priest, the scribe, learned in the words of the commandments of the Lord and his statutes to Israel, Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law, of God and of heaven, perfect peace. And now I have issued a decree that any of the people of Israel and their priests and the Levites in my kingdom who are willing to go to Jerusalem may go. He's not going to let the more people go. Go, go. And this is what's happening here. And you look at verse 16, it says, with all the silver and gold which you find in the whole province of Babylon, along with the free will offering of the people and of the priests and the offering uh, uh, who offered willingly for the house of God. Over and over again, we see these repeated sending back to Jerusalem, sending it back to Jerusalem. Uh, you can look at uh, Ezra chapter 8, 24 through 38, uh, 34. The gifts there were given. They were Jewish gifts, but you know what else? 
Persians began to give money towards it. I don't know what. It's God. It's God. He's, his hand is on this movement. So let's go back to Zechariah. I wanted you to get a little taste of that, that you can see our God can do whatever he wants whenever he wants. These gifts will be used to make crowns. Crown him with many crowns. All part of the temple construction, reconstruction, all part of the the temple worship, those crowns are going to be used. There is a hint from Ezra. The passage there tells us that uh, those that are involved in the transportation of these gifts were Levitical priests. There's a reason that they wanted to use Levitical priests because they could be trusted with money. They had more trust with money, with more goods. They could be trusted. They have to transport it from Babylon all the way back to Israel. You could lose a few minas here and there. It's just a minor thing, right? (laughs) There is a hint from these passages, folks. I want to give you a story. My wife and I were up in central California. I think you'll enjoy this story. We're up there in the, where all this fruit is being grown, and we're invited into this place that must be five or six football fields. I mean, it's huge. It's the factory where all the fruit winds up for them to ship out to uh, everywhere. And it's got all of these computers picking up the best fruit to go down this one line and the other fruit to go down this line, the other fruit to go down this line. And some of you have ever been there. It's just absolutely mind-boggling. And it goes so fast. And they've got these computer pictures that are taking the pictures. At the end of the line, I see this guy. And he's standing there. Ah, Of course, I'm going to ask the question, what in the world is he doing? It's a little Japanese guy. He's taking pictures because all that fruit, and it is the best fruit, is going to Japan. And he's taking a picture, and he's telling them in box 19999, this is what you're getting. Because they want to make sure that they get that when it gets to Japan. Now, I have been in Japan. Do you know a pear or peach, peaches, let's say peach, is anywhere from 5 to $25 a piece? Right? Now you know why. You see, in Japan, they use that as a gift. The house, you know, you invited me over to your house. I bring you a pear. I bring you a peach. And then at the end of the meal, you slice it up. It's just wonderful. But 5 to $25? And that's where all the good stuff is going, folks. <laughs> to Japan on the jet plane. And it's going to be there tomorrow morning. And it's going to be in the store. They're just like the Levitical priests who count it when it's here and when it is received on the other end, they count it again to make sure that everything was sent actually arrives. That's exactly what was happening there. I, I, I just remember that story when I was going through this passage. I said, oh, that's great. But I know that you wouldn't believe me that a peach could cost $5 or $25, but they do. Levitical priests on one end counting the money, Levitical priests on the other end counting the money, and it better be the same. The function of these priests was to record the weight, the kind, and then the transportation of that. The specific names of those transporting the gifts is also important. Why? If the guy who was sent 
let's say they send Bill with the money as a Levitical priest and Bill doesn't show up. Oops. <laughs> Where did Bill go? <laughs> so they're securing everything. The specific materials here are going to make crowns. The word for crown as found here in verse 11 is tara. It is actually a plural, which means it's going to be multiple crowns. It's also a crown that's for royalty. And I bring that up for a reason. Verse 11. Take the silver and gold and make an ornate crown and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. I don't know if it strikes you folks, but high priests don't wear crowns. High priests are not royalty. High priests don't have anything to do with royalty. They're the one, who, that, that's the one who does the sacrificing. A crown is destined always for the head of the king. But here, the scripture says, put on the head of Joshua, son of the high priest, who is going to be in the priestly line. He is not in the royal line. So it's confusing, to say the least, for our friend Zechariah. Priests don't wear crowns. And he's wondering what in the world is going on here. This indicates that the high priest has a dual responsibility as a priest and a king. It's foretelling us something, isn't it, folks? It's foretelling us something. This obviously is foretelling the, the coming of a real, the real king. This explanation will come later and we'll get to that. The use of silver and gold, though, in making this crown indicates multiple rings because you don't put gold and silver together, so they must have wove something that had gold and silver, different layers to it. Must have been a beautiful thing. Must have been precious, incredibly precious. Told to put on the head of Joshua, there is a ceremony for this. Additionally, the word for crown is never understood as a headdress for the high priest, and I've said that. Crown is a sign of royalty. It's for princely garb. Folks, think about what's happening back in Babylon. They sent them back with the gold, with the silver, for the building of the temple, and they're using it for a crown, which indicates that somebody's becoming the leader in Jerusalem. That's a bad thing to do. The dudes in uh, Babylon are not appreciating that. So with that, Zechariah has some consternation, some wonderment. Construct a crown for the high priest. And as we know, Zechariah has already told us, Zerubbabel, he's in the Davidic line. Zerubbabel is the one who's building the temple. He's in that princely line. He's the one who should receive the crown if anybody receives the crown. But if he was to receive the crown, Babylon would probably attack them again. He's a civil leader. He's involved with the reconstruction. Putting the crown on Joshua causes a problem as well. The authorities don't like that. They shouldn't like that. This must have been difficult for Zechariah. But then, he sees this as a symbolic action. That's what it is. Remember, we've looked at Joshua back in chapter 3 where it was a symbol of what was going to happen. It's a symbolic action that, that Yahweh was performing here. It's a symbolic action linking these two offices of priest and king 
for us. Where do we see that? Turn to uh, Psalm 110. It's absolutely beautiful what God has given to us. Psalm 110. It says there, starting in verse 1, this is uh, the Lord giving dominion to the king, and we see this here. In verse 1, the Lord says to my Lord, huh? Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for my for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. In holy array from the womb of the dawn, your youth are to you as the dew. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. This is speaking of the coming true king. The true king who who had to be a priest as well. Why did he have to be a priest? Because he had to sacrifice himself. You are giving a sacrifice if you're a priest, and that's what he did. He sacrificed himself for us. So what we're seeing here is a picture of the two functions of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Messiah's message is clear. He came to set the captives free. And as a priest, he offers himself up to do that. He gives himself freely for us. And he does that for believers. And I want you to understand, folks, you have to know the Lord Jesus Christ to appropriate that. You have to believe that he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You have to believe that he is the high priest. Now, the ceremony that Zechariah is talking about, and we'll go back to Zechariah, that he is hearing from the Lord is still causing him to wonder. <clears throat> and you know, I, I'm not there, and I've not asked Zechariah yet, but I hope to be able to do that someday. Uh, I, I want to make sure that I ask him. He must have been thinking, this is the dawning of the Messianic age. This is the dawning of what's going to happen because he knew Psalm 110. And he must say, this must be the, the coming of the Messiah. But folks, it's just the foretelling of the coming of the Messiah. The crowning of the priest must be a sight to ex- to, that, that just excited him. This has been the introduction to the situation that is before us. Here we encounter Messiah's message. That's just the introduction, folks. Beloved, God's purposes and plans for the nations and for individuals are proceeding according to his schedule. And I sit back and I wonder, where is the schedule right now? Is the train pulling out of the station yet? Is the Lord on his way? And I say, yes, it's eminency. He's coming. He's coming soon. I hope you're ready for that. I hope you're ready for that. And so this message that's going to happen here is a message to post-exilic Israel, which unfortunately missed the message. Many of them, when Jesus Christ did come, did not follow him. And the message is also for New Testament believers. And New Testament believers know it, but how many of your friends would know this story but not follow it? Well, if God's purposes and plans for the nations 
And for us as individuals are proceeding according to schedule exactly as they're supposed to happen. I was in uh, India, in Pune, India. We're sitting at a bus stop with Chris Williams. It's pouring rain. And I said, Chris, you know the bus is four hours late. You, you, it's four hours late. And I said, so when does it get here? India standard time. Okay. The same as this. When does the Lord get here? When he decides. When he decides. And he's on his way. We now embark on, on Messiah's message. And we're going to see that in verses 12 through 15. And, and Dr. Charles Feinberg, <clears throat> a precious, precious man, he said this in about verses 12 and 13, quote, as the most inclusive and complete portrait of the coming king of Israel to be found in the pages of the Old Testament. And he knew the Old Testament. It is a prophecy of surpassing beauty and importance. And folks, we have that before us. And what I want to do is give you a picture of, of Joshua, the high priest. Yes, he gets crowned, but it gets taken off of him. That's what happens. It, the, the crown is taken off and it's put in the temple. It's supposed to be a symbol. But it's a symbol of what? Messiah. Messiah the branch. Messiah the priest king. And what I want to show to you today, if you don't mind, is two aspects of Messiah here. Two aspects that describe him in this passage. <clears throat> and the first one is the person of the Messiah. That's the first aspect. And it says there, let, let me read 12 and 13. I think that would be better is to give you the, the, the gist of it here. Then say to him, I said, the Lord of hosts, behold, a man whose name is Branch, for he will branch out from where he is and he will build the temple of the Lord. Yes, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord and he will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne. Thus, he will be a priest on his throne and the council of peace will be between the two offices. The first aspect there is seen right there. Thus, the Lord of hosts, behold, a man whose name is Branch. Joshua, the high priest, prefigures this person, this office of the branch. Uh, the Targum is an um, uh, Aramaic uh, translation. And this is what it says about this particular verse here. It says, behold the man. Messiah is his name who is revealed. So the Targum is, is calling him, it, 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 uh, the Aramaic from the Hebrew, and that's what they've come up with, the translation. This is an incredible prefiguring of, of the Lord Jesus Christ. And unfortunately, most of the Jews missed it. Most of the Jews missed Jesus Christ. Years ago, I'm, I was still in business. I worked for a Jewish textile company. And I'm sitting in my car with my two bosses, both Jewish, one going to synagogue, the other one not. And um, I take out my Bible. I'm in seminary. Turn to Isaiah 53. And I go through Isaiah 53 and I read it to them and I explain it to them. And they look at me and they say something completely different of what I just said. They said, that's not a person. That, that's the nation. I said, but why is it personal pronouns? And they 
silent. They were silent. What came of that is they asked me, what are you going to do after you get finished with seminary? I said, I'm going to go into the ministry. About a month later, they said, well, we're going to send a new salesman out there to help you along there. And I knew what that was. That was a signal. (laughs) Time to go. This is the one of the most treasured messianic prophecies. This is the one of the most astonishing messianic prophecies. This is one of the most precious and clear messianic prophecies. This is the prophecy of the Redeemer, the Christ, the Messiah. This tells us of the offices that he fills. It tells us the mission that he accomplished, the mission of his death, the sacrifice for our sins. Just incredible. Incredible. Behold a man whose name is Branch. First, we need to establish that this is a representative of the true Messiah, and I think we did. This is Joshua who will act as or a symbol as the Messiah. The indefinite here is used to say a man. It's not the man. There are some translations that say the man. It says a man. The crown is to be made then put on the head of Joshua, then taken to the temple. It's just a symbol. He's not going to become the leader. He's not going to become the king. Yet the true Messiah, the true Messiah who's the man of sorrows, he's going to become the king. This is the man par excellence. He's the one who took our iniquities. He took our transgressions on himself. This is the man who, although he's acquainted with grief and sorrow, was the true representative of mankind. And when we stand before Yahweh, you're going to have your advocate standing with you, Jesus Christ. He wore the crown of thorns. He received the suffering that was due us. And I think that quite often, folks. I think that especially when I'm repenting of my sins that I did something to again inflict that pain on my dear God. In a sense, when Zacharias says, behold a man, he could be saying a lot of other things. He could be saying this, behold my servant, behold thy king, behold your God. All of these are said about the Messiah. These are different features of the character and the person of Jesus Christ. Let's go on in verse 12. For he will branch out from where he is. That is, he, the Messiah, the legitimate descendant of David. He is from David's line. He prophesied that that he will branch out. So that's the person of the Messiah. Now let's look at the work. That's the second aspect. There in verse 12 again. And he will build the temple of the Lord, the temple of Yahweh. This is not the current temple that Zerubbabel is building. That has nothing to do with it. Zerubbabel is in the midst of completing that, and and it's going on and on and on. Folks, this is the future millennial temple where the Lord Jesus Christ is going to sit on his throne and he's going to rule the earth for a thousand years. Now, how important this is. Verse 13 says this, yes, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord. You know what? That is exactly what was said in verse 12. 
He repeats it. It's in the emphatic. He wants to show how important it is. Yes, it is he who will build the temple, not somebody else. It's Messiah who's going to build the temple. Saying it twice makes it doubly important. When you say something once in the Bible, it's important, but you say it twice, it's twice as important. Our attention is drawn now away from Joshua as the representative to the branch. The branch will will build God's temple. This passage is so very significant. This passage specifies God's work as the builder of the true temple of God. Jesus is not just sitting on the throne. He has and will continue to do work in the Father's name. I want to take you to a New Testament passage. If you don't mind uh, that we take a little hike over there to Philippians chapter 2. I actually use this a lot this weekend because we're talking about attitudes when you do biblical counseling. And it struck me as I was going through it that, you know what? This passage actually speaks to what I'm going to be preaching on Sunday. And so in in Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 6, it says this, who although he existed in the form of God, that's Jesus Christ, He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. He didn't try to hold on to it. You know how many people try to hold on to importance and and significance and all of that kind of stuff, and and, and they manipulate and they do all kinds of things? Yeah. But what did Jesus do? Although he exists in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him. You see, when you make yourself lower, he makes you higher. You look different. People see a change when you have humility. When you have humility. And so this It is a wonderful picture of the blessed Savior, Jesus Christ. He will bear the honor. He will sit on his throne. Messiah's future rule place is a place of ruling. It is going to be in his temple, and and that's going to be a beautiful thing that that we'll be able to see. But he is emphatic. It's not Zerubbabel as the king. It's, It's not Joshua. It's the Messiah coming. And he's going to hold both offices without question. This can also be said that he will bear majesty. Now, I go, stay stay with me in Philippians. Listen to this majesty that he holds on to. Verse 9, for this reason also God highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every, when it says every here, It means every single knee will bow. Of those who are in heaven, meaning those who are saved, of those who are on earth, still there, and those who are under the earth, it means everyone. It means the guy that you've witnessed to and he told you were stupid, that rejected you. And verse 11, and that every tongue will confess, Jesus is Lord. And it's going to be to the glory of God the Father. That's what this passage is about. Our Messiah has come, rejected by most of the Jewish nation. God then includes us. 
us Gentiles, and I know there are some Jewish people here, and that's wonderful, and that's great. The lady who witnessed to me was a completed Jew, and, and when I found that out, I, I was able to rejoice in that. Incredible what God has done for us. Let's go back to Zechariah. See, the king is going to rule. He's going to rule from a throne. And we see that in verse 13. Thus, he will be a priest on his throne. And it says that he'll be a priest on his throne. I, I don't know as a Jewish person how I could miss that if I knew my scriptures. But you know what? As I counsel, there's so many people that miss what the Bible says about their relationship with uh, their spouse, how they're supposed to act as a Christian. They miss it. How can that be? How can that be? I I can't blame the Jewish people because it hasn't changed. We're still the same kind of people. We miss it. Thus he will be a priest on his throne and the council of peace will be between the two offices. In other words, it's not going to be a vying for some kind of a competition there between them. The victor completed his task and now he's able to sit down at the right hand of God. The Messiah, the Savior of his people is sitting at the right hand of God. Israel always had kings from the tribe of Judah. The priests were always from the tribe of Levi. The question comes, how can a priest rule as a king? The Messiah would be the only legitimate candidate for that. I don't have enough time, okay? But if you look at Hebrews chapter 7 through 17, that will give you an idea of how Jesus can be that priest, the high priest Melchizedek. He's the only one that could unite both of these offices. He, through the cross, became the great sacrifice, giving himself as an atonement. Friends, he only needed to be sacrificed once. And as a former Roman Catholic, I cannot wait until I tell people that. Because my dear friends that are still back there, they sacrifice him every stinking mass. And I'll say stinking. Over and over and over again. Just for a minute, go to Hebrews, because I think it's important. He doesn't have to be sacrificed over and over and over again. Hebrews 9.25, nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest offers. In other words, the high priest always went into the temple, was offering and offering and offering the holy place year by year with blood of his own. And that's even just year by year. 1012, but he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. It only happens once. 1012, but he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. Verse 14, for by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. For all those who are saved, he has perfected. And I know, I look at myself and I know there's not a perfection anywhere in here. Verse 14 back in Zechariah. I just wanted you to hear that. That's something that always um, crosses my mind for us former Roman Catholics. 
Verse 14, now the crown will become a reminder in the temple to the Lord of the Lord, to Helam, Tobijah, Dediah, and Hen, the son of Zephaniah. Now, I know we have some astute people here who actually have been listening and can see there's some name changes here. How are they in Babylon with one name and they get over to uh, Jerusalem and they've got different names now? You go back to the when I first mentioned these names, they have different names. You'll see that uh, Helam was Heldai and Hen was Josiah. How can that be? Do you know what, folks? I, I battled with that and tried to figure out, okay, what's going on? And you know what? In that day, it was no different than today. Folks, we all have different names for ourselves. You know, Thomas is what? Tom, right? Yeah, Tom. Maybe Tommy to some people. <laughs> um, William, Bill, Billy to only one person. George, Georgie. I mean, I think that's great. Where's Carl? Big guy. <laughs> right? We all have different names. You know, we, have, we, we cut it off. My daughter Deidre is D. You know, we do those kinds of things, and that is what is happening here. Wouldn't have had anything else but that. The crown, therefore, is a reminder. It's a memorial, not an actual crowning of Joshua. It was telling the people that one day, one day, the Messiah would come to claim the rightful possession of that crown. He would enter into the temple. Boom, it's mine. 615, those who are far off will come and build the temple of the Lord. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, and it will take place if you completely obey the Lord. Those who are far off. Those who are far off. This is not defined by the text, and it's not defined for us. Now, I've been to India, and I, I actually saw a Jewish temple there, a Jewish synagogue there. And so I'm asking, yeah, you have Jewish Indians wow, I never knew that. So they had proselytes going down there and, and they get converted and they become uh, Jewish. Uh, but I don't think it means that, that they're Jews that are far away and that they're going to come back. I, I think as a New Testament believer, I'd like to not put a limit on it that just the Jews are coming back. And, and there will be Jewish people that come back, but I believe it's going to include us, Gentiles. The Gentiles are included in the building of God's new kingdom. The Gentiles will be going back to Jerusalem and will be serving the Lord there. Ah, it's exciting to me. I don't even need to get on El Al. I'll just be there, you know? Be one of those moments. Here we are with the temple of the Lord, people from everywhere. What are they going to do? They're going to be serving Christ. They're going to be serving our Lord. They're going to be building his temple. This is the future temple of the Messiah. They will come and build the temple of the Lord. And again, it's the future temple. And you say, well, where do you get that from? Okay, I'm glad you asked. Isaiah chapter 2. Isaiah chapter 2. Isaiah 2 gives us such a clear picture of the Messianic era. Isaiah 2, starting in verse 2. 
And it says there, now it will come about that in the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. That's certainly not happened at any time, but it's going to happen in the future in the millennial kingdom. And many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways and that we may walk in his paths and the law will go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he will judge between the nations and will render decisions for many peoples. And they will hammer their swords with plowsh into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they learn war. That's it, folks. That's the millennium. Where we will be with the king, serving him, building the temple, and there'll be no more war. I, I look forward to that. It's going to be neat. It's just, it's incredible. When these prophecies are fulfilled, all will know that Messiah is here. You know that last portion of Philippians that I read? Could you imagine being one of the people who has refused the gospel over and over again? Or how about one of the people who sat under the gospel and refused it over and over and over again? remember somebody saying to me, why do you keep witnessing to your mother about the gospel? She becomes more liable to it, more responsible if she keeps hearing it over and over. I said, hell is still hell. I don't want that for anybody. That's what I need to remember. This is what we have here, folks. We need to be people in our hearts, in our minds, Welcome, Lord Jesus. Open up your door of your house. Open up the secrets of your mind and say, Lord Jesus, come on in. I want you here. I want you to know all that's going on in my life. I I don't want to continue to do the things that I do. And I want you to convict me of my sin. That's what this tells me here, folks. We need to be ready. And that's the question. Are we ready for him to return? Do we really know that he's going to return? Are we going to be there for that wonderful celebration? Jesus now rules from the right hand of God, and he serves us as his advocate. He's there speaking out for us before Yahweh, the only one who could possibly perform that task. But friends, I don't want to forget the end of this verse. This is the last warning in this passage. It's almost as if Zechariah was sitting there and then, oh, and he remembered. It was like an aha aha moment. And he said this, and it will take place, conditional word, if. If you completely obey the Lord your God. Now, I'm not putting uh, that you have to be perfect to go to heaven, okay? Right, But as soon as I read that, I said, hmm, I need to preach Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. Because you know what? In Matthew 5, 6, and 7, Jesus called for perfection as well. But at the same time, he also is a sacrifice for our sins. He knows 
He's been tempted in all things like we are yet without sin. And so he knows our infirmities. He knows our proclivities towards sin. And he still went to the cross for us anyway. But we need to be going in that direction. I was teaching that 20 hours of of biblical counseling and and I use a whiteboard. I'm I'm sorry, but I'm not uh, techie. You can even see this. Only thing we put up there is the message of what we're doing. I want to make it as simple as possible. And I used the whiteboard and I said, my, my doctor on the second row always gives me, when I say that it's a straight line, he always tells me they're dead. And then if I show progression, they're alive. That's what we need to be doing, folks. If I can call you to that, is that you continue to progress in your faith with Jesus Christ, in your walk with him. If you have areas that you're weak in, try to strengthen those. Work on those things. And if you're failing completely and you wonder whether you're a Christian, let us know. We want to help. We have those elders, six elders that are here willing to meet with you. We have other people that could meet with you. Ladies and gentlemen, what if he returns this afternoon? Are you ready? Are you ready? He is going to return. If it's this afternoon, are you ready? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this wonderful message that you gave to Zechariah. Lord, it's uh, impactful on my heart for me to be watchful over my soul, to make sure that my heart is in the right place without not even thinking of these other folks, Lord, that does come next. But Lord, that's what we all need to be doing. I need to take care of me before I can take care of others. I need to make sure that I'm right with you before others. And so, Lord, I pray for my friends here. I pray for the folks that are visiting us. I pray that you would give them a heart that wants to follow Jesus Christ because of all that you have done, who, although he exists in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself for me, for them and that they would be able to rejoice in that. Today, we have communion. Today is a day where we uh, take a look. Are there sins in our life that we need to confess? Are there things that we need to speak to you about? And so, Lord, I, I pray that all of us would do a heart examination before we have communion, that we wouldn't take communion um, with sin on our heart, and that, Lord, you would be blessed pray this in the great name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.